0: Hello, my name is Matthew Dicken, and I'll be having a conversation with Image Object for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. Today is March nineteenth, two thousand eighteen, and this is being recorded at a lovely collective house where I'm currently dog sitting in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. Hi.
1: Hi. How
0: are you doing, Image?
1: Oh, I'm doing, I'm doing, yes, I'm doing. <laughs>
0: do you want to tell us your name and if you'd like your age?
1: Sure, uh, my name is Image Object and I am 28.
0: And we got to talk about this a little bit before we turn the recorder on, Um. but do you want to talk about gender pronouns? Yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> my current relationship to the pronoun question is refusal to answer. Um, not that I don't have pronouns, not that someone like is supposed to use my name. I just, I refuse to engage with the question um, because it feels to me like, uh, I mean, I, <laughs> uh, uh, I am much more uncomfortable being asked the question than I am with any pronoun that anyone could possibly use for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I know is like the opposite of what you're supposed to tell cis people. But (laughs) like, that's my reality. Um, And like, it feels whenever I give a directive, straightforward answer to the question, these are the pronouns you should use for me. Like, uh, it feels as if I'm accepting a reality in which pronouns are necessary, which is not something I want to do. Um, <laughs> so, uh, before I came to this arrangement, which feels more aggressive, <laughs> uh, I would answer the pronoun question with um, my pronouns are a mirror, Mm -hmm. and I would ask people to use their pronouns for me, Mm -hmm. which uh, felt satisfactory in that it implicates someone else in their gendering of me at all times, which also reflects my relationship to gender.
0: I'm so excited for us to have this conversation about identity and like desire-based politics and just where <laughs> we are in the world. And I'm curious, uh, this next question is like a different framing and way to to open this. Um, how would you describe your gender?
1: Um, I wouldn't describe gender as mine, first of all. Uh, I don't think I have a gender. I frankly don't think anyone has a gender, but... Uh, I also don't want to tell other people what they do or don't have. Um, I mean, being sort of an Aquarius, I like have this very uh, like theoretical like conceptual experience of gender um, as well as an embodied experience of having to deal with the ramifications of those concepts. but, um, I, uh, feel very much that, like, I, I, like, I think I emotionally and physically experience the fact that gender is, uh, a thing which is external to me, but which I cannot escape,
2: Mm.
1: um, rather than an internal or intrinsic quality that I have. And so it's, it's much more been, uh, a process of figuring out where I want to be in or how I want to relate to that structure Hmm. rather than uh, identifying comfortably with uh, a particular room of it.
0: Maybe let's uh, go sort of to the start of your life and the story and see how those questions sort of come up and like where you learned parts of this along the way, you know, oh or God, discovered yes. these things. Brilliant. Um, where and when were you born?
1: Uh, I was born on January 20th, 1990, at 8.30 in the evening in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Um, uh, my parents were in Grand Forks, North Dakota for my dad's uh, grad school, where mm-hmm. he was getting his Ph.D. in psychology. Um, and I only lived there for a couple of years. Most of my childhood was spent in the suburbs in Maryland.
0: Me too. I don't know if I knew that.
1: I don't know if we've ever talked about it. No, I didn't know that.
0: So I'm even more curious about some of the next sets of questions about like when, uh, do you have a memory of an early encounter with a trans community or trans individuals?
1: No I don't think I do. There weren't a lot of queers in my life growing up. Um, I had an aunt who I didn't see more than once or twice who lives here in New York City. Her name's Dempsey. She lives with her partner Vicky. And I remember the one time that we were in New York City and we stayed at their apartment. I was like this is the coolest person I've ever met. (laughs) Um I was just overwhelmed by how chic her uh, apartment was and how cool she was. Um, And maybe I think one of my brother's friends' older siblings was a gay man, and I, like, knew him a little bit, and we ended up going to the same high school in Massachusetts. Um, But really, (laughs) the earliest queer relationship I had was with my friend and crush, Andrew Malone in second grade. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Tell us about Andrew.
1: <laughs> Andrew Malone, the first love of my life. Uh-huh. Uh, he was this like very charismatic, compulsive liar who was obsessed with the Titanic and told me he had been in it, been to it in a submarine. And, uh, We, like, he lived in my neighborhood, but one bus stop away. Uh, And we would, like, sit together on the bus to school and hang out together at recess. And um, at one, I would, like, have him over for play dates all the time. At one point, I can't remember if it was over a summer or just, like, a warm in the fall or spring but my family had a boat at the time Um, and we got to take him out on our boat and uh, while my dad was driving the boat he and I were in the cabin downstairs and he kissed me Um, so it was my first kiss and on a later play date I think it must have been later he and I were playing dress up and I was wearing a like glittery fairy costume, and he was wearing this vintage dress that used to belong to my mom and she got this really, really cute picture of the two of us. We were like just we were just in the basement dancing. I was dipping him naturally. and my mom got this really cute picture of us and sent him home with a copy and his conservative Christian parents told him that I was the devil, and he had to stop talking to me.. Ah! Uh, but the joke's on them because six years later I saw him leading the baton twirling squad in the marching band at 4th of July. So he still ended up a beautiful faggot. Um, as did I. Um, but it was really funny for me to look back on that relationship, like, over a decade later, like 15 years later, and be like, oh, shit. Like, yep. I have always been drawn to the gays. Like,
0: that's always been my vibe. You said you were in second grade when the kiss happened and yep. you were getting to know each other?
1: Yeah, all of this happened within the span of one school year, for sure.
0: Yeah. What were some of the other circumstances of your life at the time? I mean, you mentioned his family was Christian. Was What was your family's religious background? or?
1: Um. My family, my immediate family has always had a very lackadaisical relationship to religion. I was baptized Episcopalian, but I think more to appease my grandparents than through an investment either of my parents had. We went occasionally to Unitarian Universalist Church for a few years of my childhood, but uh, the one Unitarian church that was within driving distance, the sort of leadership structure of it was sloppy, and my parents didn't want to... Be involved more than a couple of years, uh, so we stopped going to that after a little while. But I did have some positive experiences there while we went. Um, it was a super inclusive space, as I think Unitarian churches tend to be. And I remember there was like a summer workshop one year where they had uh, members of the church who practiced all sorts of different religions would do mm-hmm. day long workshops on their practices. So there was a day of Native American, like workshop teachings there was a day of Wiccan practice teachings like it was a really really cool learning experience for me as a young kid um, I would say around that time in my life the most powerful shaping forces were my love of horses and my best friend Jacqueline and I love of books I was a big mm-hmm. reader when I was a kid. Mm. Um, read a lot of fantasy um, and fiction and dabbled in writing myself. I was also big into visual art, was a, doing a lot of drawing at that point in time. But yeah, mostly I was a horse girl. <laughs>
0: what were your, your parents or your immediate family like? Um,
1: my parents are great. I have one younger brother who's three years younger than me, a very sweet, nerdy little jock Taurus. He's very, very, he's a darling. (laughs) Very proud of him. Um, my parents are sort of exceptional in that they verbatim told me and my brother when we were young, we will love you no matter who you are or who you love, Mm. like said, those words to our faces. So I like never had any qualms about having a queer identity. Um it was something that as I was growing up, I I remember having the thought I wish I was cool enough to be gay. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, it was uh there was absolutely no like prescient force in my life that was like, this is a bad idea. You shouldn't Mm. acknowledge queer impulses that you have. Mm. Um, I was like hungry for queer impulses in myself, but didn't feel them or like couldn't access them until I was like college Mm. age. So, yeah, I mean, my childhood was by all accounts easy and comfortable
0: do you remember if not like or uh, among a few queer people do you remember hearing words or narratives about trans people or queer people or gender nonconforming people
1: no i would say it was almost entirely absent from my early life which like could play a part in why it took me so long to come into a queer identity. I just like, you know, I think as <laughs> my mirror pronoun impulse shows, I have a strong tendency to um, reflect the people around me. Mm. Um, and so as, yeah, there I, I was perfectly happy to be femme and that was given to me Mm. from childhood so that was absolutely like absolutely my favorite t-shirt for years was a bright pink t-shirt with a bust of a unicorn and a wreath of flowers and my mother I know for a fact threw it out once when I put it through the wash because it was starting to get holes in the armpits and I asked her about it and she was like I don't know what happened to it I was like no I put it in the laundry and you didn't give it back to me she didn't want me wearing it anymore because it was starting to get holy but it was my favorite t-shirt and i was devastated when it was gone um yeah i don't like i remember distinctly i remember uh looking out my bathroom window once and seeing a dude mowing the lawn behind our house not wearing a shirt because it was the summer and dudes don't wear shirts when they mow the lawn in the summer i was like mom Why are dudes allowed to not wear their shirts Mm. and women aren't? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Why is that a thing? And Mm. she was like, because men's and women's bodies are different. And I was like, no, they're not. How?
0: (laughs) What did she say?
1: She, I don't remember. I, like, I don't remember how she explained to me how she could possibly (laughs) have a good reason for breasts to be sexualized. I don't know how she explained that to a Mm. five-year-old. But I it was instinctive to me that it didn't make sense (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah there was I was I was for I didn't feel a a lack of queer perspectives in my life I was I I didn't feel like there was something missing but I think there were like small ways like that in which I pushed back against being gendered Mm. from an early age Um, and also I think you know in small part it was likely my parents sheltering like I was very sheltered from uh, they took some pains to keep me from uh, being overly exposed to uh, adult sexuality Mm. And most gender is about sexuality, and most sexuality is about gender. So, like, those two things were sort of missing from my childhood a lot. My early uh, childhood sexual fantasies were all like narratives about and between animals, because I didn't I like wasn't allowed to watch cartoons, even until I was I don't remember what age, but like most of my early uh, fictions were all written and then most of my early TV was all uh, Animal Planet and Discovery Channel Hmm. Uh, so like lions humping on Animal Planet was like the only access I had to sexuality until I was a fucking teenager Um, which is you know it's own weird ball game but it is what it is. It did mean that I was able to consider myself a teenage girl and still have a sense of self-worth and confidence which is I think something not a lot of people who go through their teenage years as a girl can say. Uh, I wasn't allowed to have magazines. I wasn't allowed to watch MTV or VH1. I wasn't exposed to literally any media that gave me an opportunity to critique my own body. Mm. Um, So I was able to just like kind of be a theater nerd with like three or four friends and like not worry about it.
0: I was gonna ask about how you were perceived or like perceived yourself being perceived at those. Mm-hmm. that age, sort of elementary, and, like, coming into teenagehood, um, like, did you, some of the stuff you're saying about, uh, like, ways you were pushing back, or ways that your parents were taking pains to, you know, have a say in what your media content, like, uh, intake was, mm-hmm. did you see yourself as rebellious? Did you, un- like, have an analysis of class or race or, like, your positionality at that age?
1: Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) Um, I mean, uh... No, I mean, all of my consciousness about how to relate myself, how to, how I, how my position related to... The world at large was very much something I built in adulthood. Um, I would say my first experience of consciously choosing to alter the way I moved socially was around sixth grade, um. I went to a very small private middle school where there were like 30 to 35 kids per grade. Um, My parents took me out of public school in second grade after my, or sorry, in fourth grade, took me out of public school after third grade because my third grade homeroom teacher thought ADD was something that was made up in order to give lazy children an excuse. Mm -hmm. My dad, who's a psychologist, went into the parent-teacher meeting and was like, no, that's not how it is. And she was like, I don't care. That's what I'm going to believe. So they took me out of public school after that. Um, and in this small private school, I was no longer at the middle school with my best friend, Jacqueline, who lived up the street from me, who was a year younger than me. Um, and she was the one who I mostly played with at recesses and everything in school. I like Hadn't made a lot of friends in my public school. Um, and again, when I switched to m- this smaller private school, I like pretty much latched onto one person, Sarah Kersman. And Sarah was my primary uh, friend that I spent most of my time with through like fourth and fifth and some of sixth grade. And around sixth grade, I think I was like, oh, I want more than one friend. Mm. And, like, you know, talked about it with my parents first, and they were like, yeah, we support you doing this. And then talked about it with Sarah and was like, hey, I want to hang out with some of the other kids at recess. You should, I, you could, like, we could hang out with the other kids together, mm. or you could hang out with people other than the people I hang out with. Would that be okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know sixth grade kid being like let's alter the terms of our codependent relationship (laughs)
2: um
1: and that was uh i think a crucial turning point uh in me deciding at sixth grade that codependent relationships were not for me (laughs) um And then again, going to boarding high school as opposed to day high school was I think also really crucial in my social development. Uh, I think I would not know how to talk to people (laughs) if I hadn't gone to boarding school and been forced into like 24 hour a day contact with people my own age. Mm. I was always through uh, up until my like teenage years, all through my young childhood, I was much more comfortable in conversation with adults than I was with people my own age.
2: Mm.
0: And you mentioned college earlier as a sort of turning point around queer impulses. Where did Mm -hmm. you go?
1: (laughs) I spent my freshman year of college out in Wisconsin at Music Conservatory for Mm. Classical Voice, (laughs) which is its own particular weird tale. Sarah Lawrence is where I spent Sarah Lawrence is where I spent my final 3 years where I graduated from where I initially wanted to go. Sarah Lawrence was my dream school. I don't it's it's one of it, Sarah Lawrence was one of those things in my life. There have been a couple um but it was like a kingpin where I was like I know in some unexplainable like larger psychic way. I know that I need this. I know that this is a place that I have to be in order to become the person I want to be. Um, And being years past it, I feel that that was right. I needed to be there. Um, Didn't get enough financial aid to go for freshman year. Spent a week convinced that I was going to run away with the circus rather than go to any other school. and then my parents talked me down from that tantrum and uh, convinced me to go somewhere else for year and transfer. I'm glad that I got that year doing classical voice. Mm. Um, I wouldn't have gotten that in-depth music education any other way. I wouldn't have gotten that if I had gone straight to Sarah Lawrence. Um, I also, I don't know, it, it was good for me. Um, And then, uh, being at Sarah Lawrence, I think, was the first time I found myself in, um, a social environment that was, where, where queerness was predominant, um, I would say that the social and political scene on the Sarah Lawrence campus is, uh, has very strong queer elements, has a strong queer thread, um. <laughs> I mean <laughs> there's like a, a running joke on campus "Queer, or your money back like it's undeniably a large part of the campus atmosphere mm-hmm. um <clears throat> and I think just being surrounded by it and absorbing it allowed those parts of myself that I had just never really made room for to come closer to the surface to show themselves Um, one of my closest friends during those years someone I lived with my junior year was another trans guy Um, I had my first crush on a woman my junior year yes I had like a really serious on one my junior year and that was a moment where I was like uh, I mean I don't I, yeah I, it was the first time where I was like oh I'm strongly attracted to someone other than a dude um it wasn't a struggle for me to admit that it was a struggle for me to acknowledge that that attraction qualified me as queer mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. because like <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know, because is uh, not something that I can necessarily speak to, but I think it was in, also in part due to the fact that I was, so many of my closest friends were so, like, loudly and adamantly queer that me being like, oh, I have a crush on a woman for the first time in my life didn't seem like it counted. <laughs> um... I was like, okay, well, baby steps. Um, And it wasn't until after graduation and being, like, living in the city and recontextualizing myself again to, like, the greater world, where I was like, oh, compared to the world at large, I am a freak queer. (laughs) Compared to the Sarah Lawrence campus, I'm normal, but... (laughs) Um, so it wasn't until like five years ago that I started, less than five years ago that I started using the word queer to describe myself. Is that when you moved to New York City? I moved to New York six years ago in 2012 after I graduated from Sarah Lawrence.
0: What was the city like when you first got here?
1: Um, most of my memories for that, from that first year or so are very self-absorbed. It's very much, those memories are much more about me than they are about the city. Um, I feel like, I mean, I, there are concrete ways that I can point to. In which it has changed since I've lived here, but uh, I don't feel like I have, a, like, large uh, outside of those like specific points, and the trends that they fit in with. I don't feel like I have a particularly authoritative vantage point on the ways in which New York has changed. Six years is not a long time to live in New York. <laughs> and yeah, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's like, not very long.
0: <clears throat> what scenes have you been a part of either mm. from the beginning of your time in New York or today? <clears throat> a couple of different ones, actually. Um,
1: I, When I first moved to the city, It was with uh, the intentions to uh, be here for a few years and do the starving artist thing while I figured out what to do next. I knew right off the bat that I wasn't gunning for a lifelong career as a performer, but I didn't know what I'd rather do. So I was like, all right, I need a few years to figure that out. I'm not ready to go into further grad school right now, but I know I will want to eventually. Um, so I started out immersed mostly in the modern dance scene, which is what I had studied my most, my last couple of years at Sarah Lawrence was mostly, uh, dance and hard sciences. I did, like, computer science, physics, anatomy and physiology, and dance. Um, so that first summer of 2012, that first summer and winter of 2012, where I was mostly in the dance scene, um, and I think that was a really good place to land. Dancers tend to be really invested in their, in in their personal health, (laughs) you know, when your body is the instrument of your art in such a nuanced way, you can't help but, uh, pay close attention to its needs. Um, and I think having that grounding served me really well in the upcoming years when I, uh, left the dance scene behind for the queer nightlife scene, specifically the drag scene. Um, I went to the very first Bushwig that fall of 2012 because I had just moved to the neighborhood a couple of months ago and had signed up for this mailing list for local events. Um, And Saw this like day long festival of drag and queer performance and was like, that looks amazing. Got a couple of friends to go with me, and like that night was pronouncing on the way home, like, this is my new thing. Like, this is, I'm so into this. I need more of this in my life. And then naturally, like, forgot about it and like (laughs) kept doing what I was doing for like another four or five months until February. I was at a Variety Performance Night where uh, Nay Ham Sandwich, now Theta Hamel, was performing an original piece. And uh, I saw her number and was like, oh, right. Like, I forgot about this thing, but this thing didn't forget about me. Like, it came back to find me. Mm. And I went and looked her up on Facebook discovered we had gone to school together figured out that we had mutual friends and that we knew each other um, and looked up every single Facebook event that she was listed as attending that was happening for the next month and just went to all of them I was like that's how I found the scene literally that's how I found the scene no joke Mm -hmm. Um, and at the time it was just then uh, the first round of Miss Williamsburg which is reborn now as uh, Mrs. Brooklyn. Um, But so that was my entree into uh, the drag world, which was a hugely formative experience for me. I like dove in the deep end on that and had a, like hosted my own weekly party for six months was doing shows and attending parties multiple times a week for like almost a year there. Excuse me. Um, And that, like Nightlife was how I initially made most of the connections that have led to what I would call my closest friendships now. Um, Or if like, if I, I didn't meet someone at a bar it would like that that entrance into queer networks was definitely like what unlocked uh, all of the things that I have that I now access in terms of like queer connections Um, and then also specifically The art and activity of drag unlocked a lot of things for me as well um that was definitely the beginning of my interrogation of my own relationship to gender
0: are there other particularly um special characters from either of those scenes modern dance or drag who like theta like uh, just come to the top for you right now of, like, who makes those scenes the scenes that they are? Mm. Um,
1: let me think. Mm-hmm. The first person that comes to mind that I feel like I have to talk about is Charlene. She and I were entering the scene at exactly the same time. I w- she was, like... I th- I think I met her on, like my second or third night out, ever, in a look. Mm. Um, And (laughs) I just remember seeing, like, a giant brown hair in a tiny skirt with legs that went all the way up to her butt, (laughs) and just like, prancing down the street in heels, and I like, whistled after her, I was like, whoa. Um, And like, the next time we ran into uh, each other at an event, she like, sat me down and was like, where do I have to go? How did you figure out where to do this thing? And I had only been like, finding the shows for like, a month maybe before her, but I was like, well, you gotta meet Mary Cherry and Untitled. <laughs> you gotta go to Metro. Uh, at that point in time, it was Metro TNT and Sugar Land, the big trio. Um, you know, Scarlet Fever Fridays. Uh, what else were the big parties at the time? There was like a weekly underwear party at Metro, at Sugarland. that was cute. Um, oh. Bazaar had just opened up and Jess MS was do Jess and Mary Cherry were doing a like a white clothing party called White Diamonds at Bazaar. That was a big deal for a minute. Um but it, yeah, it was I mean, obviously uh Mary Cherry and Untitled are uh the ones that I would name as the stewards of the scene since I have known it. They are, uh, and Horachata too, I think, but she does a lot behind the scenes. Um, I think, yeah, she's a personality who I saw on stage less. She is a beautiful performer, but I think, uh, enjoys DJing uh and making the party happen as much as she enjoys being on stage um whereas Mary Cherry and Untitled both are very much stage personalities faces that people recognize and see a lot of um or at least that I saw a lot of and befriended early on My entree to performance was Mary Cherry's Dragnet (laughs) at Metropolitan. Uh, she invited me to be a part of that and I made it to the final round, competed against Vivian V, Lucy Balls, and Minnie Cupcakes for the title of Dragnet that year. And Minnie Cupcakes was the winner, Mm. luckily. She deserved it. She was fucking brilliant. Um... but just that opportunity to take the stage and perform was what started making me a lot of my friendships and like gave me the thing to point to that was like, Hey, you should give me a gig. I performed at this thing.
0: Um, that's how it is. You just, you get one then your foot's in the door. Sharing secrets. Mm -hmm. I've been doing this for a month and I can take you to this party. Um, were there you talked about like these are some ways the city's changed Mm. were some of those moments that were coming through your mind a little earlier while we were talking do they have like an overlap with ways that the drag scene or the night queer nightlife scenes have changed yeah
1: totally um it's hard for me to say personally it's hard for me to tease apart uh, and divide. It's my relationship to nightlife changing where it versus mm. where it's the nightlife scene itself changing. Mm. I know that there's still plenty of nightlife happening. I know that there's new events happening that I don't know about because I'm not as enmeshed in the scene anymore. Um, and yet it does seem like there is a concrete trend of us losing spaces. Like, Sugarland was a gorgeous, gorgeous space. Did you ever see Sugarland? No. Sugarland was really, really cool. It had these weird stained glass panels and like a raised upper level that the DJ booth was on and like a sunken like pit that you could get blowjobs in. <laughs> and like the biggest stage. Like... Mm. Uh, the stage in Sugarland was like if it uh, was like the size of the entire length of TNT and like maybe half as wide it was huge. It was like by far the best performance stage in any of the three Brooklyn bars. so it was <coughs> by far like if you were a queen who liked to do shows, you wanted to get a gig at Sugarland like that was the place that you wanted your gig um and it's where they held all of the final rounds of Miss Williamsburg back when that was the thing. Um, But (laughs) by the time I was there and going there, Sugarland was this weird, like one story building between a pair of high rise condos. Mm. It looked really out of place on the block. Whereas I've, so I continued to work in nightlife, but as a bartender instead of as a drag queen now, and uh, have met people who have been around a lot longer than I have, and they have told me that, like back when it first opened, Sugarland was a one-story building in the middle of an empty lot, and it was it was nowhere, mm. and like it was the perfect place to have a noisy gay bar. Because there was no one around to bother, and when it eventually got shut down, it was because the luxury condos next door took it to the community board and were like, with noise complaints, and we're like, we don't want this here anymore. Um, it was in Bushwick, or Sugarland. Yeah, it was on North Ninth and Driggs, I want to say, I like could walk you by it. I could find it easier than i could remember exactly what street it's on but um and i'm pretty sure the space is still there unused it hasn't been Mm. purchased and turned into something lucrative they just like got out the loud faggot
0: (laughs) who owned it do you or like do you have a sense of like who was like leading not just sugarland but like who was i know that
1: um Metro and TNT, and I think Sugar Land and Macri Park also are all owned by a consortium of uh, bar owners, I think, that own a number of spaces in the neighborhood. I don't know much more about it beyond that. Um, but I know that at least Metro and TNT were uh, owned by the same people mm. who own a number of other bars. Um, but... Yeah, so Sugarland was a huge loss. We all mourned Sugarland. And then TNT was another blow much more recently. Um, that I think <laughs> TNT was always kind of a weird bunker. Um weird vibes in that place. It felt like yeah, it felt like being in a, a weird barracks. It was like <laughs> oh, like here is where the gay cockroaches are gonna survive the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. This, like, weird, like, curved cement ceiling. Super, super bizarre. Um. And I think its loss was a little bit more unexpected, but, uh, is still going strong, at least. And there have been other gay bars that have, like, come and gone and tried to take hold. Fucking Love Gun was weird. Were you, were you around for Love Gun? Oh, Love Gun was such a weird moment. Um. I'm pretty sure it was Frankie Sharp, right? I probably had the details of this wrong because it was happening after I had already started pulling out of the scene. But one of the party producers that runs a big uh, venue in Manhattan tried to open a bar in Brooklyn and like on opening night had shuttle buses from Brooklyn to this was from manhattan to this brooklyn spot i was like no there's plenty of people there's plenty of queers in brooklyn to go to your gay bar you don't need to bring the manhattan crowd out to like their vacation spot in williamsburg like no uh love gun was super weird um and short-lived and then Macri park has been it's like weird Back and forth between, it's a gay bar, it's a video bar, it's a gay bar, it's Mm -hmm. a drag bar, it's, it yeah. Macri Park almost doesn't count in my mind, but it is what it is. (laughs) There are people who love Macri Park. Macri Park has its loyals. That's fine. I won't deny them their their spot. Um, Yeah, I clearly am very much a, like, North Brooklyn, like... Bushwick, Bed-Stuy, Williamsburg is my stomping ground. I've gone to a few parties uh, further south um, in, in other neighborhoods through Brooklyn, but it's such a hike that I don't do it as much when, you know, I'm in full regalia. Um, and also have, I back when I was invested, I spent a little bit of time doing Manhattan parties, but um, not as much to speak of. The only other place that also used to do uh, drag shows in Bushwick, which has since closed down, was Tandem. Tandem had a large back room that was good for events. Um, And luckily we have Secret Project Robot, and they've been consistent. They've switched spaces, but they're going strong and uh, dedicated to the crowd. Um, Have Lots of trans people on their staff, um, lots of queer events, queer DJs, queer performers. Um, So Secret Project is a stronghold
0: for the community that isn't going anywhere anytime soon, I don't think. Um, Has that been, has nightlife and like this, like both map and timelines of bars and these sort of nightlife circuits been the primary way you've come into trans or gender non-conforming communities?
1: Yes and no. It's definitely, I would say where I made the initial connections for all of those communities. But I think for me, um, the real generative relationships have all happened outside of a bar setting. Cause like, there's only like the, the way in which, A relationship forms when it happens at night over drinks is different from the way it forms when you expand and add other activities Um, so like uh, I think finding ways to take those relationships I found in nightlife and turn them into more robust friendships that included other things was crucial um so like I it started with me finding like a few other people who came to queer nightlife from like a theater or performance background and who were taking the things they were doing in drag and queer nightlife and recontextualizing them in theatrical or performance setting Mm -hmm. and that was one way that I found to build out those relationships and then uh, another sort of uh, foundational or necessary experience was being introduced to the um, the queer sanctuaries in Tennessee Mm -hmm. which are historically fairy spaces um that have expanded uh to welcome lots of different identities um and yeah having the opportunity to be there was also foundational for me like both in terms of I I think it's I think uh Being in in those spaces is important to a lot of people. And I had a perfectly classic, cliched experience of uh, revelatory (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, self-acknowledgement on the land, as many people do.
0: Um, So many questions in my mind. (laughs) I'm curious to pose one uh, fairly general first, though, around... um, are, are what are some positive memories in relationship to these communities that just come up? Yeah. Um. Okay. I think we're rolling again. Perfect. Um, so we're hydrated and getting deeper into these questions of community and like, uh, drag scenes and queer sanctuary space in Tennessee. And, um, I had just asked about, uh, positive experiences that jump to mind of, like, you in relationship to the community?
1: Um, I mean... (laughs) There are, like, an infinite number of, like, dumb, fun nights that I recall from nightlife. Um, I absolutely would be remiss if I... uh, went this whole interview without talking about bath salts. Bath salts was <laughs> my church for like a year and a half. I, um, so my first job when I moved to New York was as a baker. I was making pastries at this little coffee shop in Bed-Stuy. Um, and so naturally my shift was from like 5 a.m. to 2 p.m. And that is very much at odds with a drag queen's schedule, as you can imagine. Uh, And so in order to accommodate my opening shift on Tuesdays, I would nap Monday afternoons from like 6 to 11, wake up at 11, go to bath salts, close down the bar with bath salts and Macy and Mame and all those people at 4, and then go to work. And... I did that on an almost weekly basis for like four or five months. When I look back on it now, I'm like, how the fuck did I do that? (laughs) But alas, I was a young 23-year-old and my body was not what it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, bath salts was so incredible. The space that Macy and Mame like, built with their presence and their personalities was so incredible. Like, I don't know. They are, they're both super into, uh, the humor of the grotesque and of the absurd. Like, they're both huge John Waters fans, uh, severely maim, like, with a name, like, severely maimed, what do, you, what, what do you fucking expect? And Macy Rodman is just so brilliant in so, so many ways. Like, her sense of humor is just so sharp. <laughs> um, that, like, I'm like, it was a fucking Monday night party. Like, Monday night is industry weekend. Like, it's well known in the, like, bar community and nightlife community that, like, if you work all weekend, you have Monday off. So, like, it was the night that all just, like, the dumb shit nightlife people came to to unwind after their long weekend of partying. You party after your party. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, like, the crowd was, like, usually in the ballpark of, like, one to two dozen people, like, not by any means a packed bar but like people who were there to see each other not to be seen Mm -hmm. you know which is at odds with the like Friday and Saturday nights a lot um and you could tell that Macy and Mame were doing it just because it was fun for them like they it was a Monday night, they gave no shits. It Like, if we're not having fun, there's no point. Like, it wasn't to make money, it was to like, be a dumbass and have a good time about it. Um, and so like, that I think was, uh, like both a refuge and a point of excitement simultaneously it was like oh you literally never know what you're gonna see at bath salts like someone could pull something really wacky out of the bag just for shits and giggles and at Don Pedro you can absolutely get away with it you can get away with anything you could then and uh, the closing night the lap by the time bath salts came to an end it was a big deal um by then Macy had come out as trans and uh had been in nightlife long enough that she and Mame both had been in nightlife not long enough that uh like the volume of people that they knew uh packed the bar Mm. (laughs) for closing night Mm. and uh I remember Mary Cherry broke a table by performing I'm Your Cherry Bomb, that song. And she uh, just spent the entire song dive-bombing cans of beer on a table and crushing them with her tit. She was just like, diving onto a table to crush an empty beer can and broke a table. That was brilliant. Uh, (laughs) Amber Alert oh fuck what was the song it wasn't you make loving fun it was something else 80s and joyous like that and she just stripped down to a monokini and okay. had someone pour salt and colt 45 all over her in a plastic baby bath in a plastic, in a plastic um, baby pool yeah. and so she was just drenched in salt and beer Um, and then, oh, another fun thing that Macy did almost every night was a little game show between sets where she would just, like, bring a couple people up on stage and give out drink tickets, uh, for, like, answering a question or doing a dare or something, and on this last night, she had someone do a shot of the salty pool water, Mm. (laughs) the Colt 45 with salt in it, uh, for a free drink ticket, which is just like, at this point, you're desperate. It <laughs> was very funny. Um, and her show on that final night, someone at some point had gotten their hands on a, like, science materials catalog and had gifted Macy a frozen fetal pig, <laughs> which she had just kept in her freezer. Uh-huh to use sometime i forget what song she did but she just like made out with this frozen fetal pig on stage it was beautiful um antics absolutely Uh antics the kind of shit that you know you're like that's what i want to see like that's what people move to new york for is to be stunned and astonished by what they see on stage Uh um And Macy was one of the people who consistently turned out those like stunning, astonishing moments that like floored and entertained all of us. Um, And then I would also be remiss not to talk about Casa Diva, which is uh, a. which is the name of Charlene's home, first and foremost, but it also is used. As a venue, to some capacity, um, and it's wonderful to be able to gather in a place that's not actually a business. Mm-hmm. In a place that you you can one hundred percent trust that the ethos of the space is about serving the community because it's literally someone's home, rather than a bar that's trying to make money, um, and. Uh, I often bartend for them and their parties that they have at their space. So I'm deeply invested in those events as well. Um, yeah, I mean, there are an infinite number of stories I could tell, but that's a, a taste,
0: a lick of the icing. I, I love it. Um, <laughs> um, I am curious before some questions around like politics and um transness and like this moment in relationship to these scenes I'm curious i mean uh like these stories have also been haunted with like as you've named it like mourning and closure and mm-hmm. these like trajectories towards um birth and then loss yeah um and I'm curious just about like the flip side of the question I just asked, like moments either as a community in mourning or uh, moments where your relationship to community were Mm. taught or negative or... Yeah. Um, I mean,
1: the loss of parties, the loss of performers, the loss of spaces is like less shocking uh nightlife has high turnover because it i mean a it's business like it it uh is a little bit fraught that our primary access to community in some ways is in these spaces mediated by capitalism um but it's what we have uh so like while it sucks to lose one it at the end of the day is the nature of the free market businesses start and businesses close um and again like being a performer in nightlife has a high burnout rate it's exhausting it's uh, largely incompatible with having a day job Uh, um I experienced that myself uh I think uh Um, yeah, so that's a sort of come and go thing that I feel personally pretty at peace with. Um, I think the general trend of, like, losing queer spaces without seeing them replaced at the same rate is a little bit alarming. But again, six years doesn't feel like a long enough, uh, data pool for me to make that claim in a solid way yet. What, uh, what I f- feel more interested in talking about as a less positive memory was um, my, the development of my relationship to my sexuality in the context of these spaces, which was naturally fraught, like, of course, starting drag uh, and start like using drag as an avenue through which to consider my own gender and my own sexuality was um, crucial and important and, like, absolutely fertile ground, Um, but it meant that as soon as I started to grasp that, like, faggotry was a sexuality that made sense to me, it began to sting that there wasn't didn't seem to be space for me in it um and that as much or maybe more than feeling uh physically and temporally burnt out was that I was emotionally burnt out on being sexually rejected by fags um was i think I would yeah i would call it the primary reason that i uh room started to remove myself from the scene when I did um you know cause like it after being so immersed in those spaces where like fag sexuality is openly on display, and I could really. F- find myself immersed in it it was clear to me how differently fags relate to sex and to one another than straight people do like obviously but also worth saying like I was like oh yeah this is a relationship to sex that I can get down with I absolutely can't get down with being a straight woman like that sounds like hell but like this I can do, this seems playful and fun and like, yeah, this seems like a thing I can get with. And feeling for maybe the first time in my life, so at home in a sexuality and feeling simultaneously shut out was, it was really hot and cold, it was hard to handle. Um, and like, I don't know, I could point to a couple of specific instances. Like there were, there were a couple of times, <laughs> multiple times actually, where a dude would be like, genuinely flirting with me and like say I'm attracted to you and I don't know why I'm not into women but like I'm feeling your vibe or something like that and I would be like well duh because like it's like I have fag vibes (laughs) like like you're picking up what I'm putting down Mm -hmm. like stop looking at what category I'm supposed to be and just like pay attention to that um because for me that's always where attraction has lied I've always been like super conscious of the fact that sexuality and sex is like just a bonding tool for me that's what it is like I don't get uh, yeah I mean at least that's my relationship to sex I have lots of People use it for a lot of other things, um, but like, that's what it is for me. And so to have someone say, I feel this bond that we have, but it doesn't make sense, made me just want to shake someone. I was like, but you feel it, like, why, like, you don't fight it, like, feel it. <laughs> it's there. Um, and the the repeated frustration of that was enough to make me pull back and reconsider how to situate myself in relationship to the thing (coughs)
0: Um, yeah I'm curious about like a bridge between that pain and like the way you started changing your relationship to the community and some like really present stuff uh in this sort of like moment of trans visibility or like whatever Mm -hmm. capitalism is doing to us Eh. at large where there's like these battles for ownership Uh, of various cultures, performance cultures, drag cultures, specifically queer sanctuary, and, like, around transness and around gay maleness. Mm. And I'm just curious what, um, like, how you see yourself in this moment of, like, people knowing what trans is and it's different, strange, hyper you know, like corporate mediatized way, mm-hmm. and how that has changed what your scenes feel like.
1: What was that last word you
0: used? How uh, that, like, moment of visibility transvi- or this moment of transvisibility, like what it's been like for you, and then how it's changed what y- you being in your scenes, oh, scenes. has felt like. Um... I think, first and foremost,
1: my concept of and understanding of myself is uh, unanchored right now. Um, like I'm at a point in which my self understanding is fluctuating really rapidly. Um, so it's hard for me to nail that down in any. Uh, extensive way, um, but, I don't know, it, uh, it's really, really new, and so I, 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 I don't know, I uh, very much feel hesitant. to name it this early, but then again, that's just my nature. I'm a waiter. I am, uh, stressed by speed and high tempos and like my impulse when given the option is always to wait until I'm certain. (laughs) Um, but it's been, it's been a a battle with myself in some ways not to uh settle back into a stable gender presentation like politically I politically and personally also I think the reality of my relationship to gender and my like the most authentic that I could possibly be with the world would be to present in such a way that my gender is always in question. Mm. Um, like having a legible binary gender at all would be an abandonment of my politics. (laughs) Um, which I, I knew going into this, but I, as much as I, I knew it, I was unprepared for the uh, psychological experience of confusing the public on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was unprepared for how draining and exhausting it is to be met with like no matter how hidden or contained or small it is by the parties in question to be met with alarm and confusion every time (laughs) you interact with someone someone new um and like absolutely that's aligned with my goals and with my gender politics but uh It is a challenge to continue to do that on a daily basis. So I think uh, as soon as I realized I was able to access binary gender again, but a binary gender that I hadn't had access to before, I was like, I started allowing myself to sort of settle into that and like regain that measure of comfort. Um, and I'm just now starting to push back against that impulse in myself and, uh, encouraging myself to, as much as I feel capable, um, destabilize my presentation, uh, even though it risks, uh, destabilizing that hard-won interest of, bags that I have just started to feel like finally like having turned the corner into being legibly and clearly like a hot guy Mm -hmm. it's been really uh, it's 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 been a soothing balm to have people fawn over me and be like you're a hot dude I'm like oh yes that's I always knew that but now you know it too that's really satisfying Um, and yet it absolutely is, uh, contrary to all of my, uh, stated politics and goals to just like live in that (laughs) and let that be the end game.
0: Are there people who have taught you or like lessons you've learned within yourself or I'm curious like about self-care toolboxes Mm. and like for the um yeah like that that thing we do as non-binary people of every day once again being like this is a commitment i'm making to Mm -hmm. how i present in the world Mm -hmm. and to doing some things to make myself feel good but also pushing against uh, yeah, I just empathize with what you're saying about comfort and like non binary um, existence. And are there people who like gave you tools for a toolbox of how to live through that?
1: No, I'm making them as I go. Yeah. It's not something that I see reflected anywhere around me. It's absolutely. Or not, I will, I, I take it back. Or not, I take it back, but I want to elaborate on that. Like, I've seen other people's tools, but I need to build my own.
2: Mm.
1: You know, I like, I think um, step one for me is like moving through the world as a visible faggot, as someone who people look at and say, that's a very gay man, (laughs) like flamboyantly so. And like once I feel like I have that in my aesthetic toolbox and Mm. I'm confident in how to shape that, then the question will be like, okay, I know how to do fag. I know how to do hot cis woman. How do you like make the purple that's Mm -hmm. in between those two? Mm -hmm. Um, And make it in a color that doesn't just turn into mud make it in a color that's like legible for me that makes sense. Um, So I think I'm, again, I'm biding my time and I'm taking it slow. Um, But it's it's an intuitive thing um, more than a conscious thing in a lot of ways. Again, that fucking Aquarian forebrain likes to take all of the emotions and just analyze the fuck out of them Uh Um, but, you know, I, I got into a full drag face again for the first time in like a couple of years last weekend. And that felt really good Mm -hmm. to be like, oh, I can still get in drag. Mm -hmm. I can still like get in a look that's like not appropriate for anywhere, but in inside of a club or on a stage and like go out and drop jaws. Like I still know how to do that. Um, that felt good because I had this moment a couple of weeks ago where I realized that no one who's met me in the past year knows that part of my life. And like, I still held it, held my past very much as a part of my present self. Mm. I was like, no, that like the drag queen is still alive and well in me. she's like sitting on her throne and coaching me through my day. Uh, but like Uh lots of people don't see her (laughs) and I was like, okay, well she can have a twirl. (laughs) Like she can come out for a night. Um, and just like finding the ways that feel comfortable for me to dismantle genders hold on me while still, uh, feeling good in the world. Like,
2: mm.
1: I, th- I I, think a lot. I mean, I named myself image object. Like, <laughs> you're going to name yourself image. Clearly, uh, there is a lot of consideration given to presentation and aesthetic. And I... Uh, I don't know. I'm like... Desperate to get my hands on a whole new wardrobe. But also I'm like. I can definitely do what I have to do with what I've got. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like. This. Combination of feeling. Antsy in the gender that I'm starting to settle into. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and. Uh, feeling like. I, like, feeling like I don't know yet what I'm trying to make, but I'll know it when I see it. Hmm. Like, like I have to just get my hands on as many options as possible and just keep trying out different combinations until I land on the ones that feel right. Getting dressed is absolutely a half hour long process for me every day. I'm like, no, like, this half of the silhouette works, but this half doesn't, this needs an extra thing here. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, for gender has always lied in silhouette for me. Um, Like, color and pattern, sure, those are great. Those are, those have personality, they have flavor, but gender is about silhouette. And so I'm like, very much trying to figure out what, pieces to combine and how in order to make silhouettes that don't have a legible gender or that feel like they're an unexpected combination of genders again this is the Aquarius thing like Aquarius likes to invent stuff it likes new ideas it's like always reaching forward and so I'm like very much in that place and like this is a creative activity that's difficult for me. Like I, when I was studying dance, I resisted hard every time I was asked to make something without a specific prompt.
2: Hmm.
1: I was like, I, I very much, um, this is my Capricornian side of my nature, is I like to know what I'm trying to build before I start my foundation. I'm like, well, if I'm trying to build a bridge, I can't start a foundation for a building. Like, I don't want to work without knowing where I'm going. Like, that's inefficient. Um, So, like, this isn't my comfort zone. Mm. Um, Of just, like, all right, well, you got to do something. You can't walk out of your house naked today, so, like, dig in and see what you can do. (laughs) put together something, you might not feel great about it, but you'll be dressed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's, yeah, it's been a process um, and will continue to be a process for probably the rest of my life. But I feel good about having swung my pendulum basically as far as I want to towards masculinity, and now I'm letting it dawdle back around towards the middle.
0: I want to do three things right now. Mm-hmm. The first one is to share with the listener, and maybe with you, that there's like a gorgeous uh, rainbow effect happening through from the windows of the basement that we're in right now and there's been this like really lovely palimpsest thing that I've experienced of you with this like several different splashes of rainbow while you talk about color and palette and (laughs) and all of these spaces that like refuse to like that bounce off of your hair to your forehead to your chest to like yeah it's beautiful and it's uh, yeah
1: these crystals in the window are really
0: helping me right now it's yeah, they're like ghosts of what people will hear of this one day. The second thing in relationship to that, because I I feel people deserve to like hear Image Object talk about the image and the object that you're presenting to the world, do you want to tell us about your silhouette today?
1: Sure. Um, the outfit that I put together today, I woke up thinking about Feeling really really immature don't know why I felt real. I felt like a big dumb baby today when I woke up I was like who am I kidding this being an adult thing is a sham um, Really did not want to just put on a t-shirt and jeans because that doesn't feel like an adult outfit um, So today I am wearing uh, These really fun punk dress pants made by my friend Claire Flurry, who's an incredible indie designer they're this uh, chambray fabric with uh, external seams that go down the legs on the outside that are like relatively rough hewn. Uh, the front has a sort of um, buttoned flap patch over the crotch area that's a dark green plaid and the rear, uh, the back like belt hem, of the pants is a red plaid, with buckles. Um, my undermost layer today is this like mustard yellow silk camisole, like tank, loose, loose silk tank tank top, um, with well, a sort of ambiguously gendered silhouette, um, and then over it I'm wearing this. Uh, Loose emerald green velour collared polo shirt. Um, This was the closest I could come to a mature outfit today. (laughs) I had to wear the silk top because silk is a mature fabric. (laughs) And I had to wear not jeans. I'm not wearing jeans and a t-shirt. That's what guided my outfit today.
0: That is a very important, like, clarity around silhouette. (laughs) I'm also curious, um, something that I've, like, heard, um, that I don't want to just, like, over-determine as an analogy, but I'm curious Mm. for you, is, like, to, to have you reflect on it, is, um, like, you knew what you were doing and how you were going to build a foundation of drag circuits, right? Like you met one person and were like, I can now ask and share secrets and like literally guide myself and build this toolbox together into a scene. Mm. When I asked about like tools or like just like tactics for non-binary existence and dealing with that like mm. as you, away from a scene and in a scene and out of a scene and all of those things, you were like, no, and there's no people (laughs) and I'm making the tools. And I'm just, that analogy is so striking to me that, yeah, about this thing of how these scenes um, are hyper-contextual. And it's like,
1: what, I mean, you know, what's appropriate in the context of a drag event, like, I feel great wearing an ostentatious look to a nightlife event and, like, having strangers look at me and fawn over me and ask to take my picture. Wouldn't feel great doing that, Doing getting my groceries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, like, the tools for... Uh, expressing a non-binary identity the tools that work for the given task vary from context to context and like absolutely being a drag queen is a form of a non-binary identity is in my eyes there are people who disagree but I think it is um and uh I think we're all fighting the same beast, but we all have to fight it in our own ways. Like, mm. no one gets out of gender. No one gets a get out of gender free card. Like, it doesn't exist. Uh, we, we're all implicated. Um, and so we, I, I, I think that, uh, and I think that the moment someone becomes prescriptive about how to cast it off is the moment that gender has its hold on you again. Like, mm. because as soon as you build a unified way to resist it it'll adapt to your resistance and reify itself um so i'm like absolutely here for you know people to i mean i am maintaining a non-binary identity while doing medical hormonal transition or quote-unquote transition. I don't usually use that word to describe this process for me. Um, Like, I'm I'm maintaining a non-binary identity while doing hormone therapy. I'm here for people to maintain non-binary transness without ever doing any kind of uh, medical intervention. I'm here for people to, you know battle this beast in whatever way makes the most sense to them and brings them the most comfort. Um, And I think that every strategy contributes to the overall goal, which is all of us uh, having a more functional relationship to the lines of power that flow between us.
0: Mm. What other parts of your identity, like, um, are important to your sense of, who you are, and what those forms of power are, and like what how you fight the beast.
1: Mm. Um, the things that my body can do just like materially, that uh, the things that it's capable of are a source of identity for me. Mm. Like, I have always been pretty athletic, um, and I mean, athletic or not, I've always been very active, even when I was uh, young and in like middle school and high school and et cetera, back when I wouldn't touch sports with a 10 foot pole, I was still very much into theater and was uh, always drawn to things that engaged my body at the same time as my intellect. Um, I have been studying boxing and Muay Thai for the past, I think, year and a half. And as I said before, drag, I was in dance, so uh, highly nuanced and codified studies of the body are a huge source of identity for me. Like, I have a really, really clear memory of standing in the shower as, like, a small child. I can't put an age on it, but, like, probably around six or eight standing in the shower and... Thinking I was standing perfectly symmetrically and looking down at my feet and seeing them not aligned and being astonished that my self-perception could be so different from externally measurable reality Mm. and like that kind of nuanced uh, self-analysis has always been a huge source of curiosity and of interest for me Um, and I funneled that first into a study of dance and now I uh, have found a really, really excellent boxing coach that gives me plenty of space to do that work inside of uh, the structure of that sport. Um, so I, I identify with being strong and flexible. I've always been stronger and more flexible than people expect me to be. Um, and those qualities of my body that aren't associated with gender or that are but like strength is associated with masculinity and flexibility is associated with femininity and I identify strongly with both of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, I Just the fact that um, in my self-perception, those qualities aren't gendered. They're just qualities of my body that I appreciate and take joy in and I'm proud of. Um, I take great pride in being strong and in being flexible. Uh, and I think another center point of identity for me has always been uh, my academic strengths. I've always, since I was young, I've been told I was smart by a lot of people, um, and I think I absorbed that and self-identify with it a lot. I think it's part of why, um, again, Aquarius, like, very much in my head, like, I self-identify with my own self-awareness. I'm like, if I wasn't as self-aware as I am, I wouldn't be who I am. Um, And I think that uh, hyper-identification with my own mental state was, I think, one of the reasons why I hesitated so long to ever, uh, or why I was always super cautious about Uh, substance use of any kind. I, like, was very, very gradual in my self-introduction to alcohol. I've, uh, I waited a long-ass time to try psychedelics and other party and, uh, party drugs. Um, yeah, I think, um, any time that my mental state is significantly altered, I, uh, I, f- I feel a minor crisis of identity <laughs> so, oh, I've always been super cautious about uh intentionally altering my mental state mm-hmm. as a result <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. um, what you just said about sort of like crisis of identity relates to me for like various ways you've talked about that mm-hmm. in this conversation and um two of them being like this category or this box of like how people were experiencing you versus what you were putting down Mm. and the pain there of like energetic versus like gendered dissonance.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then
0: also what you just said about like my self perception, the crisis of like my self perception, not aligning with um, measurable realities or Mm -hmm. external sort of, Mm Yeah, realities. And so I'm curious about, like, other boxes in the sort of moment of identity politics at large. Mm -hmm. Like, how your... uh, If there are ways that, like, you feel like your race, your class, your ability, et cetera, intersect with your politics or your experience of your gender.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think they inevitably do. I think... um, In almost all of those arenas, I'm highly privileged. And so the ways in which those parts of my identity affect my experience are much more obscure to me. I think it's like the nature of the beast that as soon as uh, you lack privilege, you sense the lack a lot more acutely than when you have it. Mm. Um, So I think... I am in less of a position to speak to those things, those qualities influence on me than perhaps people who know me well, uh, who might have an external perspective on the way that those things affect my life. Um, Yeah, definitely my whiteness and my uh, upper middle classness have significantly impacted the entire trajectory of my life. Um, Like, I think they're one of the greatest sources of ease and of comfort in my living. Like, yeah, I uh, have never felt significant lax or like never feared, significant lacks of any kind in my life. Mm. I've never uh, felt limited in uh, my access to the world. Um, despite, you know, being female for most of my life so far whatever that means Um, yeah and then also naturally like being able bodied like I would have absolutely a massive crisis of identity if my uh, physical abilities were to be drastically altered in a sudden way like even the small changes in uh my flexibility over the past couple of years as i've aged have been like uh have sparked significant introspection and like uh you know when i started the dance program at Sarah Lawrence the, first like, large piece of feedback that my primary dance professor gave to me was uh, that I was so flexible, she almost didn't know how to teach me. Mm. She was like, you have such a large range of motion Mm. and you enjoy the feeling of using it so much that I'm worried you're going to hurt yourself because you're going... the ends of your capacity where your strength is limited and i'm worried that without having the strength to control yourself at those extremes that you'll find yourself injured um and so since then my like focus in much of my use of my body has been interrogating um smaller ranges of motion Mm. um and making the conscious decision to work in a smaller range has naturally, between both working in a smaller range and just like the deterioration of a body over age, Uh, just like watching it over the past six years, I've lost flexibility. Uh, Not a lot, but enough to notice Mm -hmm. from the inside. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even just that has been like, i I would have like small moments of panic. <laughs> I would be like, Oh no, I can't do the splits like I used to. I'm like, no, that's not something you need to panic about. <laughs> you can still do lots of things that aren't the splits
2: <laughs> like
1: um, yeah
0: Has that impacted your understanding of uh, when gender has swung, like, a pendulum, and when you're doing something more closer to, like, the mixing of purple?
1: Mm. Um. Not directly, I don't think. I don't know. Uh. No, I wouldn't say that I can draw any specific corollaries between, uh my athletic pursuits, and the trajectory of my gendered experience is, um, there might be one, but I haven't drawn it if there is. Mm -hmm. They are independent arcs in my mind.
0: Do you have um, intergenerational relationships with trans or queer people?
1: Regrettably, no. Um, Because most of my queer relationships were formed in nightlife and because nightlife has such a high rate of burnout, I haven't yet given myself any opportunities to form meaningful relationships with Uh, queer people of another generation or well I mean I guess it sort of depends how you define generation Um, but no I can't say that I have any that stand out in my mind
0: and how do you see yourself in relationship to other social movements or political movements that have sort of been ongoing for these six years in New York or beyond that? Um I mean
1: uh admittedly I see myself as largely removed from Much of the political struggles that are happening, um, I'm back in school again now, uh, and spending most of my time either, uh, bartending to support myself in school, studying for school, or socializing, um... And while uh, my politics have continued to radicalize over the past six, eight, ten years, uh, and I definitely, um, time is the resource that I can spare the least of, Um, and so I spend very little of it participating in any political organizing or, uh, advocacy. Um, but luckily I'm in a bartending gig that's, uh, lucrative enough that I often do have, uh, more financial resources to spare. So, um, I enact my politics and my budget more than anywhere else in my life right now, Um, like I've built reparations into my budget, I've built, um, I've built charity into my budget, Um, obviously those are separate things. I've, uh, allocated, um, sort of, like, flexible emergency fund that gets used either for me or for close friends whenever someone is in a crisis, um, and, like, I also... Uh, my political consciousness informs my career choices to a degree. Like I'm in school right now for. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm on track to pursue a Ph.D. in neurotechnology. <laughs> uh, basically, I want to design cyborgs. Mm-hmm but (laughs) I would ideally like to design cyborgs in such a way that uh, contributes to the dismantling of capitalism rather than its reification. (laughs) Um, So I, uh, I have some vague ideas about how that could happen, but again, they're all conjectural and theoretical and, uh, many decades off from being enacted, um, so while I would absolutely say that, um, I'm empathetic and sympathetic with, uh, most of the radical political movements happening at the time, uh, they don't get a lot of my daily energy. Not as much as plenty of people I know. But also more than other people I know. Like,
2: yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm curious about that specifically, because it's like... Um, yeah, I'm curious about... Because we've talked about the these, like, queer night lives and these, like, visible queer politics and... Uh, the way like an externalization of capitalism's trans moment has Uh impacted uh, the queer nightlife scenes that you're in or have been in and I'm curious to like flip that a little bit about how you've seen resistances or like relationships of queer nightlife to politics or just to Mm -hmm. like whether that like manifests as like political organizing or like explicit relationships there Or, I mean, I know your budget, and then I also know, like, you have a very clear politics around, like, local communities of color and specific, you know, and, like, that relationship to Queer Nightlife, like, in Brooklyn. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I mean, politics are something that inform every single choice you make, not, like, one or two choices you make, you know? So, like... um, for instance, like when I was trying to figure out how to build some kind of athletic activity back into my life, uh, when I like knew I wasn't trying to be a career performer or a dancer, and so wasn't going to invest <coughs> in um, dance classes, which tends to have a higher price point per hour than just a gym membership. I was shopping around for gym options and rather than do like a chain gym like Blink or Planet Fitness or CrossFit or what have you, I was uh, pretty invested in doing a like smaller, more local item. And for a year I was boxing at a local family-run Puerto Rican boxing gym in Ridgewood. And then switched recently to, again, a one-person business run by this guy, Mario Marin, who's a New York native and Muay Thai fighter and uh, an excellent, excellent trainer, and I really love uh, being in his gym and he also uh, has a like weekly donation based trans boxing that happens in his gym which is funnily enough how I found it um, but now I, I, I don't attend that event I am a full member of his gym and I go to pretty much every other class so that I can leave space for people who are uh, Maybe less confident in a not uh, trans-oriented gym atmosphere, mm. um, and like uh, again, that's like I think for me that falls under the general umbrella of like being a budget decision. Uh, I yep. I mean in a in a capitalist economy, like money is always political. So, um, a lot of how I, again, and people will call this a Capricorn trait too, is enacting my politics through my finances. hmm uh, <laughs> But, um, I think, I don't know, there's, I'm like, I'm, I'm very much a practicalist like there are very few ists and isms that I actively identify with. Um, queer and trans are pretty much the only identifiers I actively claim. Like I don't... I, mm, anti-capitalist sure but I, I don't like actively claiming an anti as an identity, it's like, okay, so if not capitalism, then what? what is it that you want instead? Well, uh, something else. I'm like, no, that's not practical. That's not actionable. <laughs>
2: like,
1: that's not actually helpful. Um, and I, 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 if it doesn't serve me, if it's not practical, then I don't feel uh, the utility of aligning myself with it. Um, But I do think that uh, nightlife, along with almost every other business venture in the country, has uh, noticed that politics are becoming something that they need to engage in. Like, I don't know. It, it's, it's become such a thing over the past couple of years that, like, businesses need to prove to you that they're not bigoted Mm -hmm. (laughs) in order to be worthy of your business, Mm -hmm. Um, which is like a weird (laughs) thing for them to try to do because you're like, well, you're a business. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, you're not a person, you're a business. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway. I don't feel like that directly addresses your question. Will you rephrase it for me so I can come back to it?
0: Sure. I, I, uh, I asked. Um, yeah. just... Or unless
1: you feel that it's sufficiently answered.
0: I uh, no. I mean, I I do feel like you touched on it. I asked if just if there's anything you want to add, but I asked uh, just about if you've seen like a, a change in the way that queer nightlife is is relating to political resistance, or mm-hmm. social movements, or, yeah. um, but... I mean, in small ways, I think, yes.
1: Um, yeah, I think it depends on where you look. Mm-hmm. Like, there are definitely... Uh, small, some would say, token ways, in which uh, people pay lip service to political movements. Mm. Um, And then there are other like, I don't know, I don't know. I think at the end of the day it's like, well your event is still about whatever you said it's about. So if you're coming together over drag and performance, like, Sure, that's inherently political in a certain way, and then that it's it's queer, and Mm -hmm. it's a um, celebration of glamor and of femininity, and glamor and femininity are downtrodden in the world, and like any time you celebrate that, that's a little bit of inherent radicalism, and political content, sure. Um, And like, there's, no need to like gild the lily and try and over politicize and do more than that, like that's what you're doing, do that. Um, and then people are also using uh, nightlife organizing as a way to bring people together around a political idea. Mm. Like for instance, Starbar and Mayday Space and the alliance that they have is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Just for the record, Star Bar is this uh, bar in Bushwick that has uh, a partnership with a political organization called Mayday. Uh, Mayday is a uh, people-of-color led uh, social justice org that uh, gets 10% 10% of Star bars profits off the top, and they uh, are involved in a lot of their event organizing, and so most of Starbar's events are run by and or geared toward uh, queer people, people of color, Bushwick natives, immigrants, um, stuff like that. So it's cool to have like, that's a model that I don't see replicated anywhere else um, that comes immediately to mind. Um,
0: yeah. Um, so I'm curious to carry just a little bit through one um, question. I'm sort of like systemic, uh, quote-unquote, you know, trans issues or whatever mm-hmm. in relationship to what you just said a little while ago about um, your politics being expressed through your finance, financial decisions and budgets. And I'm curious about how you ac- have, have access to our accessing, started accessing or thinking about accessing um, transition mm-hmm. um, or how you're like people and you've talked about like emergency funds for care and emergency funds for... Yeah friends how um yeah that that sort of intersection of like how your money has been related to transness and Mm -hmm. your politic political decisions
1: um i got really really lucky i had a gp that i really connected well with at the time that i wanted to start hormones um and she basically like I walked in said I wanted to do hormones and she gave me the green light like it was that easy Um, I just I brought it up one day that it was something I had decided I wanted to do and she responded with okay I have not ever done that for a patient before I've never administered or prescribed hormone therapy. Uh, So if you want to see someone else who's more experienced, I support you doing that. Or if you want to do it with me, just give me six weeks to do my research and come back and we'll start. And that's what I did. Um, Wow. Yeah, that easy. Uh, Naturally wrestled with my insurance company over getting it paid for, but As far as accessing it, it was uh, really a blessing to have her at that specific point in time, um, and I've since then had to switch GPS due to changes in insurance. But um, once it's like once you're on the regimen, you don't get questioned. Yeah. Um, so that was relatively easy. I uh, am dating someone who doesn't have healthcare and who is a trans woman of color so I uh, a lot of my financial resources uh, I keep uh, I keep some dog-eared for her needs Um, and she's accessing her care mostly through the free clinics in the city so she's taken care of on a regular basis but her mental health isn't stable and so whenever something happens, I want to be sure I have enough available, um, to cover her expenses so that she can get the, whatever care she decides to seek without worrying about the financial aspects. Um, and then there's, uh, a small sort of DIY community pharmacy that's being slowly accrued at one of the, um, uh, at mm-hmm. one of the sanctuary spaces in Tennessee, mm-hmm. and I'm contributing to that as I'm able. They're like stockpiling hormones, Truvada, mm-hmm. a number of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I get access to things to give them, I send it their way.
0: Have you ever gotten uh, any form of healthcare care outside of, like, a legal or uh, licensed medical context?
1: I have been lucky enough to not
0: have to
1: do that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um. And another way of thinking about that question, like, are there any things, either specifically sort of outside of the context of Western medicine or just ways that you've... That have helped you feel better in your body. I mean, you talked about uh, my tie and boxing and mm-hmm. different relationships to like physical activity making you feel better in your body in relationship to your gender. Yeah. Um, or spiritual yeah. practices or drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I
1: mean, I've had, you know, my revelatory acid trips as have had we all. It's um, sort of write a rite of passage. Uh, I am lucky enough to live right now with a self-taught herbalist who makes her own tinctures. Uh, and mm-hmm. so she's been gradually introducing that knowledge into my life, which has been fun. Um, I would say that Impacts areas of my mental health that Relate indirectly to my transness mm. um, but That's been cool to absorb anyway Yeah, definitely the um, Quasi-medical <laughs> Experiences that have most impacted my transness and queerness were the psychedelics. I you know my uh an acid trip was like the key to my personal uh, gender decision. It was like ripe for the happening, but that was the tool I chose to unlock my door. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was about to walk through it, I just needed a key, and that was the key I picked up. Yeah.
0: Um Yeah, the toolbox question. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like I mean that's a part of my the, like, arc that I've drawn for myself over that portion of my gender journey was, like, once I started withdrawing from gay nightlife and drag nightlife because of feeling so uh, rejected by gay sexuality, I had a, like, pretty significant denial phase that I was like semi aware of at the time it was basically like me saying for myself well I have to like be sure I cross everything else off the list before I try being trans Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have to make sure I can't make it work any other way Um, so I like Had a solid year and a half, almost two years of like dabbling in various uh, like incarnations of being high femme Mm. Um, and like making a real concerted effort to be a fun slut, succeeded in being a slut, didn't succeed in having a whole lot of fun Um, (laughs) and like needed it badly, uh, needed to go through it and needed to be exhausted by it uh, in order to come to the end of my rope Mm. and be like, nope, I got to do the trans thing. Uh, And so it was like spring of 2016 that I had gotten really exhausted by being high femme for like a year and a half really exhausted by fucking a lot of straight men that summer. And I sort of just spent the winter hibernating and uh, letting all of that marinate psychically. And by the time spring rolled around, I was, like, starting to dabble with wearing butch outfits even though summer was coming and summer is a really good time for being a (laughs) femme slut. I was like, "Mm, I'm feeling kind of butch. Like, I was, like, I knew I was ripe for it and it was gonna be my second time down at the sanctuary, and I like brought this dress with me that was gonna be my acid trip dress mm-hmm. that I was gonna trip acid w- with Charlene for the first mm-hmm. time. Charlene is such an acid queen. I was like, she has to be there the first time I trip. Um, I was like, I'm ready. This is the thing. And it's this, yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but you would love it. It makes me think of you. It is a giant muumuu <laughs> That's literally it's I sewed the sleeves up so that they're snug the silhouette has mm. snug sleeves and then just like a Big open body with like a boat neck. Yeah, and the fabric is this like textured sort of crimped royal blue with like a Splashed pattern of like gold mm-hmm. over top of it. It looks like sunlight on water. It's beautiful yeah. It's absolutely gorgeous Um, it's the dress you want to be wearing when you're having an acid trip, you know, (laughs) um, brought it with me. was down on the land. Like it was, uh, my like Ida boyfriend who gave me my acid. Like, you know, you do this thing when you get on land, you like link up with one person and they're your boyfriend for the week. Um, and we like, you hauled our tents and like slept together for like the next three days. Uh, and then it was the day before I was set to leave and like we dropped acid and went to the waterfall together and had this whole like gorgeous day where we like covered ourselves in mud and stood under the waterfall and soaked up the sun, hung out with our friends and did the whole thing and I was wearing the dress and felt great until I didn't anymore. Mm. And then I was like, I'm surrounded by all of these beautiful queers who get it in these gorgeous woods. Like there's no reason external to me why I should be feeling icky about mm. wearing a dress right now. So if I'm feeling icky and I need to go put on a jock strap and a crop top, then that's coming from inside me, not projected onto me from anyone else. Mm-hmm. And it means that I've drunk the same Kool-Aid as everyone else and I have to dig it out of my own head. like, I don't have to do hormones for anyone else's benefit, I have to do it for mine.
0: That's beautiful. That was it. I think that's right around when we met each other, was mm-hmm. spring 2016, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, if you wanted people to hear one thing from you, what would it be? Oh god.
1: Oh, I don't think I have a an elevator pitch that I'm prepared to
2: give.
1: Nothing comes immediately to mind. I don't know, I'd have to think about it. I don't have a slogan. I mean... I'm the image, the object. It speaks for itself, I guess.
0: <laughs> and if you wanted to be remembered for something, what might that be?
1: Oh God! Well, now we're gonna delve into my
0: delusions of grandeur. But <laughs> I—we're talking about anti-capitalist cyborg, or like not anti, but cyborg that ah, uh, uh, something other than capitalism. capitalism.
1: So Amen. Yep. I'm ready. Yeah, you can think of me as the first cyborg, first anti-capitalist cyborg. That's what I would love to be someone who started something else. I don't know yet what it's gonna be.
0: Anything else you'd like to add? That does it for me. And any people you uh, think of who you've named already or haven't named who you think might be interested in being interviewed for this project? Or interviewing others?
1: Charlene would be a great choice. Um, I would love to think that we could get my girlfriend's story out of her, but I don't think she would be willing. <laughs> um, if I think of any others, I'll let you know. Yeah,
0: yeah, maybe one day, right? We'll see. Um, I love you. I love and you. Really glad we did this. Thank you. And totally. I'll turn the recorder off. Bye.